Thank you. Turn with me to Titus chapter 2 as we are nearing the end of our series of sermons on um, the pastoral epistles. We're in chapter 2 of Titus uh, this morning and uh, God willing next Lord's Day we'll conclude this series uh, by looking at chapter 3. Kind of making a, a quick trip through the book of Titus since we've already uh, examined First and Second Timothy and much of what we find uh, here in Titus we've already covered there. And so making a quick trip through uh, the book of Titus. This morning we're in chapter 2, and I'll read all 15 verses. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity in doctrine, dignified sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny unguidedness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the great glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority that no one disregard you. And that is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask again your blessing upon our time together in your word. We know how important this is because what we've just read is your word from your book. And I pray you help us, O oh God, to be attentive to it to be submissive to it. I pray that you give us the eyes to be able to see its truth, our ears to hear its message, our hearts open to receive it and to apply it. Give us grace to that end, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, a doctor is concerned about the health of his patients. A father is concerned about the health of his family. An employer is concerned about the health of his business. And in the same way, a pastor is concerned about the health of his church. Now, it goes without saying that everyone wants to be a part of a healthy church. But sometimes, healthy churches are hard to find. The truth is, in reality, all churches are somewhat sick. They just have varying varying degrees of symptoms and ailments. 
and some are more sick than others. You see, there are no perfect churches. I guess you've heard the old saying, if you find the perfect church, don't join it because it won't be perfect any longer. You know, the church is made up of sinners. A congregation of sinners. Pastors who are sinners. Elders who are sinners. Deacons who are sinners. And as you can imagine, that is not a recipe for a healthy church. That's what I tell couples when they come to me for premarital counseling. I tell them, look, a man who's a sinner and a woman who's a sinner don't equal a perfectly harmonious relationship. Instead, it makes a relationship that is tainted and marred by sin. And that's the way it is with the church. And that's why the church, just like a marriage, needs the healing grace of Jesus. That's why the church needs to be bathed in prayer, immersed in Scripture, and to be practicing forgiveness. You see, healthy churches don't just happen. They are the result of believers who are seeking the Lord, who are walking in the Spirit, who love God with all their hearts, all their souls, all their minds, all their strength, and who love each other as they love themselves. It's healthy Christians that make healthy churches. And that, my friends, is easier said than done. There are more churches that don't experience that than do. Now, I want to say something a little personal for a, for a moment. And that is, I believe that, that North Point's as healthy today as it's been since I've been here as your pastor for the past eight years. Now, hear me. I didn't say we are in a perfect place. I didn't say where we are where we need to be. I said we're in a good place. And that's because we're showing some of those signs of a healthy church. Committed to prayer. Immersed in scripture. Practicing forgiveness. Those are good signs. Healthy churches are attractive churches. As I said before, people want to be a part of a healthy church. And the more we strive to be healthy ourselves, healthy as believers, as individual Christians, that's where the health of the church comes from. Healthy Christians make healthy churches. And so uh, uh, we want to strive to continue to grow in grace individually, to mature in our faith personally, so that our body can mature and grow as well. Well, that's what... Paul is talking about here in Titus chapter 2. He's talking about a healthy church. And he says three things about it in our text. First, he says that a healthy church teaches sound doctrine. A healthy church teaches sound doctrine. Now, the context in which we find what Paul tells us in the third part of this chapter is important. You might remember the end of uh, the last chapter of chapter 1. He'd been talking again. Uh, We've seen it often in these pastoral epistles, talking again about the danger of false teachers and of false teaching. He had some very strong things to say about them in verses 15 and 16, where he said, To the pure, pure, this is chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. 
Both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. And then he turns to Titus in chapter 2 and says, But as for you, you see, Titus was not to be like them. His teaching was to be different from theirs. But you, he tells him in verse 1, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Titus was to teach the truth. He was to give the people the solid meat of the Word of God. And he was not to shy away from teaching what Paul calls sound doctrine. Now that's what many people, including many preachers and Bible teachers, want to do today. They want to shy away from doctrine. They avoid the discussion of deep theological truths. They pass over important doctrinal principles that are taught in the Word of God. Some of those doctrinal principles, you might remember, we examined last Sunday, like justification, sanctification, propitiation, glorification. You know, that's what Carrie White is going through in Sunday school with the adults this morning about certain theological or doctrinal truths that are found in Romans chapter 3. But a lot of people act today as though people are not interested in doctrine or in theology or somehow that doctrine has no practical application to our lives. But nothing could be farther from the truth because people are looking for the truth. They want to know what God says. They want to hear a word from God. But the wonderful thing is that we don't just have a word from God, that we have the word of God that God himself has given to us. And we should always be a church that is focused upon the truth of God's word, not afraid to open it up and say, this is what God says. We shouldn't shrink back from proclaiming the whole counsel of God and doing what Paul told Timothy to do, to speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. You see, you cannot separate doctrine from life. The truth is that doctrine is under life. What you believe determines how you live. For example, the more you know about the character of God, the more you will know what it is to be like God. The more you understand about the commandments of God, the more you'll be able to keep them and please God by doing so. The more you know about the atonement of Christ, the more you'll appreciate the gift of your salvation. The more you know about heaven, the more you will enjoy worship and look forward to uh, life after death when you engage in worship as your sole occupation of life. You see, doctrine is not divorced from life, but doctrine teaches us how to live. And that will become more clear as we go through our text this morning because the things that are fitting for sound doctrine that Paul tells Timothy to teach we find in this chapter are extremely practical. Sound doctrine leads to sound lives. And so a healthy church teaches sound doctrine. Second, a healthy church focuses on all groups. It focuses on all groups within the body. Paul names five different groups in the church to whom Titus was to minister. In verse 2, 
he refers to the older men. In verse 3, it's the older women. In verse 4, it's the young women. In verse 6, it's the young men. And in verse 9, it's the bond slaves. The church is to minister to all those various groups. And he starts with the older saints in verses 3 and 4. Or excuse me, verses 2 and 3. People like me, the older men and the older women. Now you hear some people say, well, I want to go to a church where there are a lot of young people. And that's a good thing. And we talk a lot about the importance of having young families. Thankful for all the children that God has given to us here at North Point. But as important as that is, as important as having it is to have young families and young children, a church does itself a disservice if it neglects reaching out to older people. You see, grace enables us to bridge the generation gap. I'll tell you, folks, I don't want a, I don't want a church of just under 35s. Because a church that has just under 35s is missing a lot. They're missing the wisdom and the stability and the maturity and the guidance of older believers. That's what older saints provide for a church. They play a part that is invaluable. When I was a young minister, I used to make the rounds visiting, kind of like an old country parson. I think I've told you before, I had my grandfather's uh, Ford Fairlane. It was like a 1965, I think. And I'd get in that old tank of a car, and I'd go through Simpson County uh, visiting, uh, especially the older people in the church. I would sit there, I'd visit with them, read scripture with them, and pray. And I don't know if it meant anything to them, but it sure meant a lot to me. As a young man, just being able to spend time with those older, godly saints, people who've been believers longer than I've been alive, and the contribution they made to me, the encouragement they made to me as a young believer, a young minister, was invaluable. A healthy church needs some godly older members. Look what he says in verse 2. Talking to the older men. He says they are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, and in love, and in perseverance. The older men give the church the stability, the maturity, the wisdom, the dignity, the sensibility, the faith, and the courage. It so badly needs. And in verse 3, he addresses the older women. He says they are to be likewise reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good and encouraging the younger women. The thrust there is that the older women are to reflect holiness. Now, I'd expect that since uh, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, mentioned two specific sins here, gossiping and being enslaved to much wine, that was a, those were two particular sins that the old women in Crete were struggling with. That could have been other sins in other places that other women were struggling with. But the point is that the older women are to pursue godliness. They are to be reverent in their behavior. And that reverence is to manifest itself in all areas of life. The other emphasis 
in the role of the older women in the church is they're to be teachers. It's clear in the text that the, the older women are models of godliness for the younger women, that they are to be uh, teachers of the younger women. They have so much to give, so much to teach, so much to demonstrate. And I want to talk to those in my age group for just a moment. If you're under 60, you can kind of take a little, little break here for a few minutes. I want to talk to those who are 60 and over. You have such a valuable place in the body of Christ. We do talk a lot about young folks here. We talk about young families. We're thankful for young folks. and We're thankful for children. But you older members among us are of great value. Do not think simply in terms of it being your time to step away so other people can step up. Continue to be involved in the life and the work and the ministry of the church. We need you. We need your faith. We need your maturity. We need your wisdom. We need your guidedness. We need your stability. We need your example. So find ways to stay involved. I know that many of you stay involved through prayer, praying for me, praying for the elders, praying for the deacons, praying for the women, praying for the ministry of the church. Thank you for that. Think of other ways you can stay involved in the life and the work and the ministry of the church. Volunteer to teach a class. Get involved in VBS. Uh, Take some of these younger folks out to lunch. Invite them into your home. I can guarantee you that some of these young adults here this morning are yearning for someone older, someone more mature, someone godly to invest in their lives, to spend time with them. They would treasure hearing of your experiences, of your walk with Christ, and how uh, it has been a blessing uh, to you. A healthy church needs the continuing ministry of its older members. And that's clear here in our text. Paul mentions them first, the older men and the older women. Then in verses 4 and 5, he turns to the young folks, to the younger women first. And he says in verse 4 that the young women are to love their husbands, love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. That's what they're to learn, you see, from the older women. The older women are to be encouraging the younger women to these good things. And it's clear that The younger woman's focus is to be on her home. She is to be, uh, she is to love her husband. She is to love her children. She is to be a worker at home. The home is to be the primary focus of the woman's attention. Now, I don't believe that necessarily means that no woman should ever work outside the home, but she should always remember the home as her primary area of responsibility. I would say that if a woman's work outside the home takes her away from that primary God-given responsibility, then she needs to rethink her priorities. In verses 6 through 8, he turns to the younger men and says they are to be um, uh, sensible. And then he tells Titus to be an example to them of good deeds, purity and doctrine, and dignity being sound in speech which is without reproach. I just want to point out two things at this point. Uh, 
One is that in, to, in speaking to each of these four groups, the one trait or the one quality that is mentioned every, every time with each group is that of being sensible. Now, we don't normally think of that in terms of spiritual qualities, do we? Or spirituality, being sensible. And yet, it's clear that is important in the life of a believer. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, they are to be sensible. Now, to be sensible is just what it says. is to live with common sense, living in a way that shows discernment, discretion, and sound judgment. Now, common sense and judgment, we hope, mature with age. But all of us, no matter where we are in our stage in life, should be pursuing those things to be sensible people and believers who are maturing and pursuing godliness. The other interesting thing is how these character traits of each group in the church do two things. One, they honor God, they glorify Him. The other is they're a witness to those outside. Notice, for example, the end of verse 5 when he's speaking to the young women. He says they're to live this way so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And then if you look at the end of verse 8 in speaking to the young men, they're to live in this godly way so the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. You see, our, our good behavior, our godliness within the life and the confines of the church does two things. One, it honors God and glorifies Him. But also it kind of hushes the hushes the mouths of the opponents of Christ and of the church. What, what's the chief and primary criticism of the church? The church is made up of what? Hypocrites. People who act one way here and are different somewhere else. And Paul is saying here, your consistent life of godliness living in your workplace, in your school, in your home, wherever you may be on the golf course, wherever you may be with your friends, living consistently, living a guided life there just as you do here, silences those who oppose you. Then there's a, still another group that Paul mentions. And those are in, mentioned in verses 9 and 10. And those are the bond slaves. Slaves. Now you need to understand that slavery was a, a common practice in those days. It was far different from uh, the kind of slavery uh, that was such an atrocity in the history of our own country. Uh, slaves are more like employees. Many of whom held good jobs and positions of responsibility. They were generally well taken care of and had their needs met by their masters. Well, what does Paul say about them? Look at verse 9. They were to be subject to their masters in everything. They were to be well-pleasing to them. They were not to argue with them. They were not to pilfer or steal from them. But rather, they were to demonstrate their faith in adorning the doctrine of God in every respect. Older men... Older women, younger women, younger men, 
bond slaves, employees, however you want to take that today. The church is to minister to every group in the body of Christ. We're not to neglect one or the other. Not to neglect the older members to focus upon the younger. Not to neglect the younger to focus upon the older. Don't you see that's how the body of Christ is made? You know, in Romans chapter 12, Paul talks about the body of Christ compared to the, to the physical body, how we are individual parts of each other, and how we need each other. And when one part is missing, we understand that it's missing. And when one part hurts, the whole body hurts with it. And a healthy church understands that. A healthy church understands the dynamics of the different ages and different groups and seeks to minister to each one. And then third and last, we see that a healthy church lives in grace. Carrie was talking about grace this morning in Romans chapter 3 and how important that is in all of our lives. You know, the oil that keeps all these different groups in the church running smoothly and functioning together smoothly is grace. Because after going through this list of different groups within the church, Paul gives an explanatory note in verses 11 through 15. And it's a note about grace. And as I conclude my sermon this morning, I want to talk just a few minutes about what we see here in these verses about grace, the importance of grace to our lives. We see, for one thing, that grace redeems us. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, Paul says, bringing salvation to all men. Now the important link in that verse is between grace and salvation. Grace has appeared, bringing salvation. Now some get distracted by the phrase all men. But if you're going to take the words all men there literally, you have to become a universalist, have to believe all men are saved. If God brought salvation indeed to all men. But of course what we understand that to mean is that God brought salvation by His grace to all kinds of men. That's why you and I are here this morning, isn't it? Because God brought salvation in His grace to all men. Salvation is not just of the Jews, but it's of the Gentiles. And I see a lot of Gentiles here this morning. Salvation has broken down the barriers of race and creed and nationality. So that now salvation is brought in God's grace to all men. And that grace, of course, that grace of redemption was accomplished through the death of Jesus. Look at verse 14. Who himself, speaking of Jesus, gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. God's in his grace, God in his grace sent Jesus to redeem us. No one is saved apart from the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross and embracing that gift of grace by faith. So grace redeems us. The other thing we see is that grace reforms us or it sanctifies us. In verse 12, look at what the Holy Spirit says. Grace has appeared instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly. There's that word again, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And then in verse 14 he says, 
that Christ gave himself to redeem us. And he goes on to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Salvation is unto holiness. God redeems us so that we might pursue godliness. The real evidence of saving faith is a changed life. God's grace not only rescues us from hell, but it transforms us into new creatures, makes us like Jesus. We might do the will of God from the heart. And so grace redeems us, grace reforms us, and also grace rewards us. We find, again, verse 13 where Paul says this, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. The the reward of experiencing the grace of God in Jesus is to be with Him in heaven. Those of us who've tasted the sweet grace of redemption look forward to that day when we will set aside everything in this life that hinders us and keeps us from being everything God wants us to be. And we're able to behold Him face to face and enjoy Him fully and completely forever. It is, as the text says, our blessed hope. And we say with the Apostle John, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, because being with Him is our great and blessed anticipation and hope so let's be clear this morning about what makes a healthy church Paul gives us three things it's a church that teaches sound doctrine is not ashamed or afraid to proclaim what God says it's a church that understands the dynamics of all the groups within the body of Christ and tries to appreciate each one minister each one and use the gifts that God has given to each one And it's a church that lives in grace. That understands that God's grace redeems us. God's grace restores us. God's grace uh, rewards us as well. As your pastor, I want a healthy church. It begins with a healthy pastor, healthy elders, healthy deacons, healthy members. God cause us all to grow to be healthy people healthy believers that we might have a truly healthy church let's pray Father thank you so much for your love for us in Christ and all that you do for us and we pray that we would be healthy people as we mature in, in Christ as we grow in grace as we become more like Jesus Father, we pray that we would see evidence more and more of your work among us here in our body And we pray that we would truly uh, teach sound doctrine, minister to every group in our midst, and live daily in the grace you provide for us. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing.